The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and Chuck is with me, too. And we're just a couple of intrepid explorers sitting around in tiny rooms. Um, I don't know what we're exploring, but we're exploring something. Freezing to death? Yeah, I'm a little warm, actually. I'm kind of sweaty. Maybe scurvy? I don't know. Pneumonia? Lead poisoning? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things that happened about this uh, expedition that we're going to talk about, the Franklin Expedition. Very, very famous, uh, I guess, polar. No, it wasn't a polar expedition. It was an Arctic expedition <laughs> from the middle of the 19th century. And if you've ever seen that show on AMC, The Terror, did you ever watch that? No, I remember oh you recommending God. that a while ago, though. It's so good, Chuck. So there's two seasons, two totally different stories. I'm recommending the first one because it's all about like a speculative fiction about this. About this very thing? <laughs> yeah, believe seasons? it or not. No. Just the one. second season is about a f- uh, Japanese family in an internment camp during World War II. Well, that sounds equally uplifting. <laughs> totally different. But the first season is really amazing. And it, it, it is all about this. All the characters in that season are based on actual yeah. people from this expedition. It's really neat. Well, now it all hits home. Yeah, there you go. Um, so it, 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 even before AMC came along and did it, this is probably one of the most famous expeditions in history, sure. mainly because it was such a colossal catastrophe. There yeah. are 129 crew members, including the captain, the expedition leader, all the officers, and all the crew— and not one survived. All all of the crew was lost. That's really rare, even for Arctic exploration back in the day. Yeah. And then on top of that, for a very long time, we had no real clue what happened to them. Well, we did. We just ignored the clues. But the, it was a mystery. It was, they just vanished, basically. The last time they were seen was by a couple of whaling ships at the very beginning of their voyage. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. I mean— there's lots of ways to disappear. In Especially the, in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, in the Arctic. In that time of, uh, in the 19th century. Very easy to happen. Yeah, but at the same time, this was remarkable even at the time. This yeah. was, it was weird that, that like these, these guys, this expedition just went so colossally bad. And then one of the reasons, like I was saying, that it's been such an enduring mystery is because we never really knew. We never had much evidence. And then we had scant evidence over time and, the little evidence that we did collect um, didn't really just explain everything. There were lots of question marks. And even today, with all the stuff we found and discovered along the way, 
we don't really know why this whole thing went so pear-shaped so so quickly. Yeah, for sure. But we're going to talk about whatever we do know. I think that's that's our task today. <laughs> Are you prepared for this task? Sounds like a very uh, not thought out name that our show could have been called. <laughs> our task is to explain this today? No, everything we do know instead of stuff you should know. Oh, okay. Should we talk about the Northwest Passage? I would love to because it's kind of important. Yeah, well, it it's funny. It kind of is and it kind of isn't. Uh, I think that they thought it was going to be really, really, really important uh, back in the day when they were like, hey, listen, we got to find a route uh, to sail basically straight from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, it, it didn't end up being a big, heavily used passage. Uh, there's there's a problem with the Northwest Passage, and that is it's really hard to get through. Yeah, uh, There are a lot of uh, Arctic islands up there north of Canada, and they uh, there's a lot of ice, and that ice moves around a lot. You can never exactly predict where you're going to find that ice mm-hmm. or where it's going to recede. And even when you're out there, it's going to be moving around. So it, it's almost like playing a game of Frogger <laughs> sometimes when you're uh, to the, forget the car part, like the highway, like when sure. you get to the to the river, because you're like, oh, you know, I got a passage now because I see it in front of me, but I might not have it in an hour because the ice moves. So it's a very tricky thing to get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people and a lot of expeditions um, went, uh, tried to get through it, um, charted, you know, great deals of it. Uh, and as we'll see in the end, John Franklin and his crew was tasked with uh, basically about 300 miles of, you know, sort of figuring it out, charting it. And that was sort of the last bit. And even had it been all charted, it's still not like an easy thing to get through. No, but just charting it was a, a huge mission for the Royal Navy because at the time, the middle of the 19th century, the British Royal Navy was the, the greatest sea power in the world. Sure. And in their backyard, the Arctic, there was an entire piece of the globe that was just a blank question mark. I saw a really great documentary on Nova, and they showed a map of the world as they understood it in the mid-19th century, and everything else had been charted except for the spot in the middle of the Arctic. And so they it was had a kind question of a, mark there? It, they actually did. <laughs> they had a blank space and a question mark. Amazing. It. it was like the Riddler had, had done that right. cartography. But— um, it was like a blemish on the the reputation of the British Navy that they still hadn't been able to chart it, despite trying for hundreds of years to, at the very least, chart it, if not make it through. So it was a big deal, and that's they they really wanted to do this. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of people uh, you can't like point to a single person and say like they discovered this passage. Right. Uh, kind of for some of the reasons we've been talking about the thirty thousand islands in the ice and people getting bits and pieces together a little bit at a time. But a lot of people take credit. There are a lot of people that are given credit for different parts of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one guy named Robert McClure uh, from the Royal Navy, of course. And he's credited as the first um, complete transit. Part of that was on land. Uh, And then there's a guy, a Norwegian named Rald Amundsen, who was like, all right, now this is the first guy who did it all by sea. And this was like, what, uh, 50 plus years after McClure had done it partially on land. So mm-hmm. it's like a lot of time is passing. And this is at a time when the advances of, of sailing and getting through passages like this was 
sort of at its peak. Yes. And by the way, Roald Amundsen, uh, he was also the guy who was the first to make it to the South Pole. So he was quite a show off as far as explorers go. Well, look at him. So, yeah, it wasn't until the 20th century that somebody actually made it all the way through by ship. So it kind of goes to show you that, like, they, they weren't really successful, this Franklin expedition, and even after the expedition. Yeah. But what, what's, um, what's interesting about it is uh, Ed helped us out with this, and he made a point that um, there were a lot of rescue missions to go find yeah. the, the lost Franklin expedition. And while they were there, they charted stuff that had been uncharted. Sure. So um, Ed makes the point that that by getting lost, Franklin actually contributed more to the charting of this unknown part of the Arctic than he did while he was actually alive because he didn't actually make it very far and his crew made it kind of far. But by the time they made it to where they were going, they couldn't have cared less about charting. They were just trying to stay alive unsuccessfully, as we'll see. Yeah, well, there you have it. Oh, I guess I, sp- I spoiled it. After having already said that not one of the 129 oh, sure. men survived. Yeah, you're like, no, wait. I spoiled it in the first 30 seconds, not just now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Franklin, John Franklin, that is. Not Benjamin, of course. Mm, sure. He hated boats. Uh, John Franklin was born in 1786, and he was not a rich guy. He did not come from some noble family. Uh, but he did end up getting a lot of seafaring experience in the Navy, a lot of combat experience. Like, he knew his way around a ship. So, uh, in 1819, uh, he saw that the British Navy was downsizing some, mm-hmm. and he the writing was kind of on the wall for, or at least he felt the writing was on the wall for him. And he said, all right, what I should do if I want to, you know, continue at sea, and, you know, I kind of like this life, is I got to get out of the military and become an explorer, become an Arctic explorer, because that was... A, like a path post-military that you could do. You, you could become an adventurer. Yeah, and he was still part of the British Royal Navy. He was a, a captain in it, but it, it was, he wasn't engaging in warfare. He was engaging in exploration. So it was almost like they had two two prongs. You could either go like um, Discovery Corps or, you know, the core of death and destruction. <laughs> Sounds like both lead to death. Yeah, in this case, Discovery Corps didn't pan out very well. I just spoil it again. So, uh, yeah, we'll just, everybody, just forget that everyone dies. (laughs) We're we're working up to that, apparently. So he got to work uh, on his discovery path. He was doing pretty well. Uh, He commanded some expeditions uh, here and there. One uh, ended up being a big failure uh, on the north coast of Canada, exploring Mm -hmm. um, near the Coppermine River. And... Half of the men died. The reason that this is noteworthy is because that even though it was a big failure, he gained a lot of notoriety because he survived grim conditions and very famously ate his boots Mm -hmm. to survive, ate the leather from his boots, which is a thing that happened uh, uh, on alone on that TV show I watched that some guy ate part of his belt. Oh, yeah. How did it go down? It didn't go down well. I can't imagine it would, man. I don't think, I think the idea when you boil leather like that is that it's just, you know, some of the fat will come off and it's, it might give you a little bit of caloric intake, but it's, it's not a great plan for success long term. Yeah. Uh, but Franklin earned a lot of notoriety by eating his boots and wrote a, a big uh, best selling book about it and was knighted, even though it was mm-hmm. a failure. Yeah. Because they, they kind of saw it as, 
you know, he had he had sacrificed that much in the name of exploration. So sure. why not knight him? You know, it's better than like throwing rotten tomatoes at him upon his return. The guy had to eat his boots for Pete's sake, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was one of his two initial expeditions. The one that we're talking about today was his third. The other one was pretty catastrophic too. Um, nothing like the first one. Uh, and nothing like the third one, but still noteworthy enough that, like, it was not successful. They got lost. And both of those first expeditions, Franklin and his um, his crew were bailed out by Inuit, um, who basically made sure that they stayed alive. They, he probably wouldn't have survived that first expedition had it not been help from the Inuit, who uh, made sure that they made it back and were fed and all that stuff. And that's a big recurring theme that we're going to run into is mm-hmm. the, the Inuit were in the background, like back in England. People knew they were there. They called them Eskimo, right. um, spelled like it would if you were in New Orleans or something with the A-U-X at the end. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what, that's what they did. They were not thought very highly of. And yet the whole time, as we'll see, like the Inuit were just witnesses to this history had an extensive and detailed oral history, knew exactly what happened, where everybody oh, yeah. was, what went down, <laughs> when. Uh-huh. And yet the, the the British and other European explorers just would not listen to them. And when they did listen to them and they tried to explain it to England, England shouted that person down and told them they were a fool for listening to the chattering of these these Eskimo. Um, so that's a that's just kind of a common theme, as we'll see, that the, the Inuit played a huge outsized role that we're only now starting to kind of like acknowledge or recognize. Yeah, they also, it, there was a common theme that if you were smart enough to listen to them while you were there, then mm-hmm. you fared much better than if you did things your own way. Definitely. But the problem was, is like that was not something you would want to do back in the mid-19th century in front of your crew. Officially, you could, yeah. You could very quickly like, your crew could lose confidence in you because you were doing something totally out of the norm and probably out of the bounds of respectable behavior by following the lead of, of you know, an Inuit at the time. Or I'm sorry, yeah. an Inuk. Something I learned is Inuit is the plural, Inuk mm-hmm. is the singular. So if you're talking to, you wouldn't say I'm talking to an, an Americans, you'd say I'm talking to an American. And in the same yeah. way, you'd say I'm talking to an Inuk who's a member of the Inuit. Yeah, what they would were smart to do would be to take uh, an Inuk around behind a big block of ice and very quietly say, listen, old boy, if you have any advice, please just let me know quietly. <laughs> Happy you, to follow. Can you draw it where we should go in the snow? <laughs> right, and then, yes, yeah, and then erase it very quickly. And, uh, with I pee. Save face, yeah, with your urine. <laughs> uh, so, or may, no, 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 wait, erase it with urine or spell it out in urine? Uh, you would erase it with urine. You could do both, but the spelling uh-huh. it out with urine would, would be too permanent. You would want to okay. pee all over it, and it would melt out the instructions once you committed them to memory, and uh-huh. everybody in your crew would have thought you just went behind the ice block to pee. Well, that's why they have the uh, slogan as the Sharpie of snow riding. <laughs> what does, pee? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't Boy. know pee had its own slogan. It did. I really— I circum I circumnavigated that like a big ice flow. That was nice. Clumsily, some somewhat breaking through with my iron force. There were a couple of bumps in there, sure. All right, so where are we? He is. Uh, he had the second expedition that he said wasn't as bad as the first and third. Still not great. Right. He's kind of thinking about hanging <laughs> up his uh, half-eaten boiled boots at this point. Mm-hmm. He's in his 50s. And in 1837, they said, no, why don't you take this appointment uh, as the lieutenant governor of Van Diemen's Land? 
which we now know as Tasmania. Sure. And that only lasted a few years. And his wife, Jane, said, you know, what you should really do is finish strong. You're getting old. You got one more in you just to sort of save the family name. Mm-hmm. One more Arctic expedition that, that might really be great and cement you as uh, a victor. And he sure. said, I guess I'll try if they'll have me. He said, Roger, Roger. <laughs> yeah. So he did. He Well, she did, I should say. He kind of just went along with it. But um, Lady Jane Franklin really worked behind the scenes to get her husband uh, appointed to the head of an Arctic expedition. And in particular, this one that was considered potentially the last one to, to map the Northwest Passage because there was only that 300 miles of uncharted territory. So I got a, a question, though. Was this a situation where they gave it to this older guy but because no one wanted to do it because it was so dangerous? Or, like, I saw that, you know, younger captains, you know, declined to take the position. Mm-hmm. Is it because it was just so fraught? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, it's possible, but that seems like that would fly in the face of, like, the Royal Navy and their attitude at the time. Like, you would step up and be like, yes, I'll be the one to die, rather than be like, oh, I don't want that, you know? So I'm not sure exactly why. I'll have to go back and watch the terror again. Uh, is it like how historically accurate is it? Extremely, but at the same time, it also veers off into like just wild speculation. Uh, okay. Um, I, I got to see it now. Yeah, it's. I, I can't really get across how good it is, and it's yeah. one of those ones where you know when somebody talks something up and you go mm-hmm. in expecting high hopes or right. with high hopes, and you're invariably let down. You will not be let down. All right. That's how. That's how great it is. I expect texts from you every, like, couple hours while you're watching it. (laughs) Should we take a break? Yeah. All right, let's take a break. We've got it set up uh, in that he is going to take this uh, final voyage to restore his name, and we'll be back right after this to let you know what happened. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, everybody, if you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. 
Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. You start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A.com. Hey everybody, it's time to talk about Squarespace, and in particular, Squarespace's Fluid Engine, a next-generation website design system only from Squarespace. It makes it easier than ever for anybody to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. That's because you start with a best-in-class website template, then you customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. You can stretch your imagination online with Fluid Engine, built in and ready to go on any new Squarespace site. Yep, you can use your site to easily sell custom merch through your online store. You can upload, organize, and access all your content from one place with your asset library. And those amazing website templates are all flexible with designs for every category and use case. That's right. So just go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Okay, so uh, Lady Jane Franklin has successfully secured the appointment of as head of this expedition uh, in in eighteen forty six, I believe, an eighteen forty six expedition to the Arctic to uncharted territory, largely because no one else would accept it, but also because she maneuvered. I don't think, I think without her wrangling, mm-hmm. he still might not have gotten it, even though no one else wanted it. He was ready to go out to pasture, yeah, and the Royal Navy was more than willing to let him go. Lady Jane Franklin said, no, meet my sheer will. And they did. And so he became head. And it's not like he was just some hapless boob or something like that. No, 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 of course not. He just, he wasn't the finest captain in the Royal Navy. I'm sure he wasn't the worst either. He was just, you know, average. And his track record wasn't so great. And there were plenty of other captains in the Royal Navy that had far better track records than him. Um, but it, it, again, I don't want to get across like he was the wrong man for the job. He just wasn't necessarily the best man for the job. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was trying to make up a funny name for the worst captain in the Royal Navy, but I um, stopped. I got I got nothing either. Yeah, <laughs> no matter uh, <laughs> how I try, I guarantee it won't be good. Like, uh, oh, what's something funny about someone who can't sail? Um, they have uh, lead feet. How about lead foot Mc can't swim. <laughs> oh boy, that he's is the worst. Not, that's not a good sailor, right there. Or um, James Francis can't steer. Right. <laughs> I love it. Should we? Speaking of steering, should we talk about these boats? Uh, yeah, let's because they're kind of important too. Yeah, very important. Uh, one, as I guess, is named for the TV show The Terror, or vice uh, versa. Yeah, and the Erebus, what I said it was named after the TV show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the Erebus, um, these were, uh, previous to this outing, they were um, they were warships, but they were ships that didn't, you know, have like cannons up and down the sides. They were delivering uh, big mortar rounds close to shore. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were squatty and they were super strong and they were sailing ships, but they were retrofitted for this adventure, 
I keep calling it an adventure. It was an adventure. I think I that's guess. fair. Yeah. For a while, at least. Uh, they were retrofitted in a bunch of ways. Um, first of all, adding these iron plates to the front to, you know, break through the ice. Mm-hmm. But then they also added a steam engine to the sailing vessel, uh, n- not to just use full time, but, you know, because you require too much coal. You can't do something like that. Mm-hmm. But to get you through, like, uh, like I was talking about that moving ice, if they were like, oh, my gosh, we need to get over there quick because mm-hmm. I see a channel that's closing, they could kick in that steam and get over there faster. That's just like one ways that they would use the steam engine. Yeah, like if you were playing Frogger, you wanted your steam yeah. engines going. Exactly. Um, so they also figured out how to use the steam as basically central heating. This it's was like cool. state of the art. We're talking yeah. like the late 1840s here. And these guys were going on an Arctic expedition, and I think they may have been the first crew ever to sail into the Arctic with um, central heat. So that was an enormous luxury. And they also used the steam system um, as a water distillation um, system. So they had all the fresh water they needed, but Mm -hmm. they could desalinate it. They could um, decontaminate it. Um, It was just a really ingenious system, all, all kind of built into one. Yeah, and uh, if you're wondering about the propellers sure. being a problem with the ice, they actually retracted back into the hull when they were in shallow water and icy water. So, like, for the 1840s, this this felt like a very modern operation. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, um, the, the, the it's important to remember, though, that the steam was meant to just kind of give them a boost. They were still right. sailing ships. That's yes. mostly how they moved was through sail. Yeah, and uh, they brought a lot of stuff. We always like to talk about oh boy. Uh, the load of any expedition and what they kind of carried because mm-hmm. it's usually a precursor to uh, they didn't either have enough or they had the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they had 32,000 pounds of beef, uh, 33,000 pounds of uh, tinned meat, which will very much come into play. We'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had fresh veggies. Uh, they had livestock. They had live animals on board, right? They had uh, cattle, sheep, pigs, hens. Sure. All meant to probably not last very long. And then eating was good at first. Exactly. They also had pets too, Chuck. There were three pets. There was a monkey that Lady uh, Jane Franklin gave to the ship as a present, and I guess was kind of Captain Franklin's pet. Yeah. And apparently used to steal stuff a lot, but it was a super cute monkey, so everybody forgave him every time. Yeah. Much more popular was a dog named Neptune in Newfoundland. I mean, come on. Got to have a dog on board. And then there was a cat that may or may not have had a name because I think I got this information from a historian named John Geiger, who has basically dedicated his career to mm-hmm. the Franklin Expedition. And he does not name this cat. And the fact that he didn't makes me think that cat didn't have a name. It was just the cat. They, I, don't, I don't think they named cats for a while. Yeah? Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of historical stories where there was like a cat they just called cat. So, like, Mr. Sphinx didn't come around until, like, the 70s, maybe? I don't know. Hmm. We'll find out. Uh, Lots of short stuff just waiting yeah, to happen, I totally. guess. Totally. Uh, they also had uh, thousands of pounds of sugar, had tons of spices. I mentioned the veggies. They had, uh, you got to have tobacco. They had about 7,000-plus pounds of tobacco. Mm-hmm. Uh, tons of booze, 4,000 gallons of uh, either rum or wine. <laughs> um, so close to 3,000 pounds of candles. So they could see because, you know, it gets uh, during the winter there. It's dark for long, long periods of time. For sure. Uh, Lemon juice, lots of lemon juice. That's a big one. They had 930 gallons of lemon juice to stave off scurvy. And every every, uh, crew member got an ounce a day. 
Um, and unfortunately, it didn't work for a lot of people. A lot of guys seem to have gotten scurvy, their teeth fell out, and um, they were fatigued, and all sorts of terrible things happened because of a vitamin C deficiency. And yet they had enough lemon. And apparently historians think that it, the lemon juice may have started to ferment. Mm-hmm. And so to kill off those that bacteria, they may have boiled the lemon juice to get mm-hmm. kind of recharge it. And in doing so, that would render the ascorbic acid, the vitamin C, totally yeah. ineffective, inert, yeah. basically. And so they could have been drinking lemon juice all day long, and they still would have gotten right. scurvy. So that that's that's a great theory. I don't know how accurate it is, but it's the best one I've heard. It's also the only one I've heard, but it's still some right. pretty good. <laughs> uh, and how about we set up the first part of this tinned food thing? And then we'll reveal the what happened later. Yeah. Uh, but he, and it was sort of a new thing. Um, usually you would take dry goods, like salted pork and stuff like that, if you wanted to eat well on mm-hmm. a ship. But Franklin said, no, let's do this a little better. Uh, tinning uh, technology is is new. Uh, I'm going to contract with this guy. His name's Stephen Goldner. And he's, he's, well, I was about to say the best at this, but he was doing this. <laughs> and they said, give us whatever you can get us on time. We need uh, 8,000 tins of food, um, cooked beef, cooked pork, preserved meat, all soup even. Don't forget and, the pemmican. Oh, well, what, what is pemmican? I've heard of that. It's, uh, it's, it's, I saw it described as paste of dried and pounded meat mixed with fat and spices. I saw it compared to oily beef jerky. And then some okay. people like, I guess, keto people like will add like maybe some fruit or something to it just for a little bit of carbs. Okay. But it was a very popular staple in the Arctic because it was fatty and full of protein. And that's what you needed. Those are good things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And Goldner was like, all right, uh, this stuff is going to be great. It'll last you a few years. And I need to get to work, though, because I have a short timeline. Um, But delivered those tins. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Yeah. So they they took on all these supplies, um, I think, after they passed Scotland in, in um, Disco Bay, D-I-S-K-O. Yeah. Um, it's a shame. Yeah. So close. <laughs> they do not dance in Disco Bay. No. Um, that's in Greenland, on the west coast of Greenland. Um, that's where they took on supplies. And then also, really interestingly, they left behind five guys. There were originally 134 crew members. Mm-hmm. But five of them were left behind in Greenland because they they were basically booted off the ship by Franklin. Um, The only explanation I saw is that they had run afoul of his bans on swearing and drunkenness. Mm -hmm. So they actually managed to avoid this grim fate by by cursing and being drunk, essentially. Yeah. um, Good for them. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So they took on all of these supplies. They took on the coal. They took on all the the tinned meat and all that. and they started sailing toward Baffin Bay, not the one in Texas. This one is up in the Arctic. And they were about to enter Lancaster Sound, or they, they did. Um, right before they did, they were um, sighted by a couple of whaling ships, the Enterprise and the Prince of Wales. And uh, it's really disappointing they didn't spell the Prince of Wales like a whale. They spelled it like the country. Mm-hmm. It's a whaling ship. Come on. Yeah. I mean, and boat names are supposed to be buns. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Like uh um, oh man, I can't think of one right now. I can't either. All of them are though, aren't they? Yeah, at I mean, least the ones them, in but... Florida and you know California, like San yeah. Diego. Yeah, they're very punny usually. Okay, so these whaling ships hung out with them. Apparently, they boarded and like looked around. They were like, "Oh my God, central heat!" Um, when they took their leave of the Erebus and the Terror, 
they were the last people, they were the last Europeans to see these people alive. That's right. And one of the other things I just want to say about Lancaster Sound, Chuck, from Baffin Bay, if you look at it on a map and they don't map out the sea ice, it is a, you could shoot an arrow from Baffin Bay to the Arctic Ocean, which would eventually take you to the Pacific, just straight through Lancaster Sound. And yet, because of the ice, it was so bad, they couldn't go anywhere near across Lancaster Sound. They had to immediately start to go south. Yeah, oh boy, go south indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about sort of how you navigate through this ice. Uh, we did mention that that had, you know, iron on the front of their ships and any any sort of ice ship or fishing ship that's in icy waters will have a reinforced hull because, you know, you can break through some of this stuff. Uh, if you ever watch, you know, Deadliest Catch, they do that kind of thing here and there. Um, but if you really get sort of uh, in a position where you, you know, the ice is too thick and, you know, this ice is continually being just smashed against the shore until you have like ice mountains along the shoreline mm-hmm. and it just it just stacks up on each other. So eventually, if you get to a place where you really can't get through, there are a couple of things you can do. You can wait for summer and, like, cross your fingers that it'll melt because it may not even melt then. Mm-hmm. Or you can use a, a process called warping, which is when you basically inch yourself along little by little by uh, – if there's land nearby, you could, like, tie yourself to something strong on land and and winch yourself by little by little. If there's no land around, you can put your anchor in a dinghy and send somebody out, probably not a dinghy, a little bit bigger boat, um, drop the anchor, and then winch yourself toward that anchor. But it is extremely slow going if you can even get through at that point. Uh, I think Ed used one example of a rescue expedition that was trying to find Franklin that spent nine hours basically going the length of their ship, Mm -hmm. like an inch at a time. So it's not fun. It is, uh, but it's, it's like, that may be your only chance at survival sometimes because you can you could get stuck in ice forever and die. For sure. And that's actually what the Franklin Expedition found themselves in the, that situation. Yeah. Um, at first, they were doing fine. They um, wintered at Beachy Island, mm-hmm. um, which is not very far past where they entered from Baffin Bay um, because I think they set sail on May uh, 19th. Mm-hmm. And uh, winter comes quickly. Right, exactly. They finally, oh, sorry, they finally left um, Disco Bay uh, in July of 1845. So, yeah, winter comes way earlier up there than it does here. Mm-hmm. So they wintered pretty quickly. And they, they were successful that first winter. Uh, the ice started to melt, and they started to do some cool little navigating and, and uh, apparently doing um, U-turns. And all sorts of stuff that we'll never probably know exactly what they did. Yeah. But that first winter and summer went fine. Yeah, but three guys did die um, of basically kind of how you die back then in those conditions. Could have been pneumonia. Mm -hmm. It could have been, I mean, who knows what kind of health some of these guys were in. But it wasn't anything like super unusual. They just lost three guys. Yes, but that supposedly was not a good record, um, even for an Arctic expedition, losing three guys that quickly. Yeah. So aside from the three deaths, fine. Things went pretty well. Compared to the rest of the expedition, that was great, right? Sure. (laughs) So the first winter comes and goes, the first summer comes and goes, and now they've made it to the northwest corner of King William Island, and they they get iced in for the winter. 
And again, this is what they're expecting. They had three years' worth of supplies. They figured mm-hmm. it would take that long to, to circumnavigate all of this, you know, um, this ice flow and throughout these seasons. So they're not worried yet. When they start to worry is when the next summer comes and the ice doesn't melt. Right. And that's what I mentioned earlier by crossing your fingers. You know, it sometimes it melts, sometimes it doesn't. It all depends on the conditions at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, they had been there for a while. And like you said, we're surviving. And they were even sending guys ashore that were, um, you know, charting their location. And n- n- nothing was really out of the ordinary uh, like you said, until they were like, well, we're still stuck. Mm-hmm. And that's when it got fairly scary. Uh, this is, um, I guess, spring or what would be spring? I don't even know what you would call May in, eight, in, in that area in 1847. Winter part two, maybe? Sure. <laughs> uh, there was a team that went to leave. Um, they had this method for leaving messages. They would use these Royal Navy forms, basically like uh, – they should have just had letterhead because they would have had more room to write. But instead, they would write in the margins mm-hmm. of these Royal Navy forms just to make sure people knew it was them. And they would leave them in sealed canisters uh, in various places. Uh, this one was under a cairn um, that someone else had built before them. And it was a pretty brief note. Things were okay. Yeah. Uh, nothing out of the ordinary to report at that time. Um, these people came back to the ship from, you know, delivering this note and making sure it was safe to be found later. And Franklin had died while they were gone uh, on June 11th. Yeah, they even said in the note, Franklin commanding. Yeah. And then well, all well. Far, they should have said, as far as we know. Right, right. <laughs> so that's, um, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, the leader of the expedition dies. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not like, uh, well, we're, what do we do now? I mean, there was a second in command a guy named um, Francis Crozier, um, and then a third in command named James Fitzjames. So there was like a clear chain of command of able able captains and leaders, right? Sure. But it's still, I mean, at the very least, that just seems like bad juju when you're up on an Arctic expedition and you've been snowed in through a summer, right? Yeah, and a few other people died too. So at this point, they've lost, you know, probably close to 10 people. So from September 1846, when they first got iced in for the second time, this time off the northwest coast of uh, King William Island, all the way through 1848 and actually beyond, they they just sat there. Their ships were iced in. They were they didn't move. They just stayed there. If the ice moved, then the ships moved, but that was it. They didn't move within the ice. And these guys are like living on these ships, kind of living on shore. They made camps. Um, and then they finally abandoned the ships um, because it was becoming clear that I guess Crozier had this this gamble to make. He could either wait to see if the ice melted mm-hmm. next summer, and in, in which case they they could probably make it through to safety. They could sail to safety during the summer and be saved. But if the ice didn't melt, he would have wasted uh, um, several months waiting for to see if the ice melted when right. they could have been walking to safety. And he chose option B. He said. Um, we we need to start moving towards safety because I I don't think that this ice is going to melt again. Yeah, and uh, the Inuit, uh, the ones who who listened to them, uh, a few dozen of them did make it to mainland Canada. But just because you made it to mainland Canada doesn't mean like that you're saved. Like they they were still in big trouble. Oh yeah, uh, obviously. Um, 
at this point, Lady Jane, well, should we take a break now, actually? Yeah, yeah we'll take a break. Should. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break and uh, talk about what Lady Jane did right after this. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, everybody. If you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. At the start of the new year, every small business owner is asking themselves the same question. What's the one move you can make that'll take your business to the next level in 2024? Well, LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success all depends on the team you surround yourself with, right? That's right. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than 1 billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Yeah, and when you have that many quality candidates, hiring is easy. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn also knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. And thankfully with LinkedIn, the process is intuitive, quick, and easy. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash SYSK23. That's linkedin.com slash SYSK23 to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right. So at this point, things are going really bad. Um, the, the expedition itself, as far as trying to uh, get these last 300 miles of that passage figured out was, I mean, forget about that. 
at this point. These guys are just trying to be alive. They're walking across yeah. frozen sea ice that they're yeah. they they're just walking. It's that much ice that it's just like one continuous sheet all the way to Canada. Yeah, not not a, a healthy prospect for survival. No, um, and one other thing, Chuck, I want to throw in: they're not just walking; they're pushing huge ships loaded with supplies. They're dragging them and pushing them along this ice and rock. Okay. Not a fun task. No, exactly. Uh, so this is where the search period begins, which spanned from 1847 to 1859. All kinds of people went out looking. Lady Jane was ringing that bell. Uh, the Royal Navy was offering up uh, 20,000 pounds in 1850. Ton of money. Do you want to know? Uh, I mean, let's hear it. Is this an American or a uh, I got both, buddy. Well, let's hear it. Uh, that would be 2.2 million pounds today or $2.8 million today. What about euros? Oh, I didn't do that one. You got me. Yeah, interesting. You, uh, you could have said, what about drachmas? You're, you're typically more thorough, but that's fine. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a, man, that's a lot of money. Uh, enough to attract what eventually ended up being uh, over 30 expeditions that were going to be fraught with the same peril, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like things had changed and it was now easy, but it was, you know, it was it's sort of like in Jaws, you know, all these all these people had money on their mind. They had their mind on their money and the money on their minds, <laughs> right? And wanted all those pounds, and it was a big, uh, it was a big public thing. Like people, people wanted them back, and they tried to get them back their hardest. Yeah, because you know one of the reasons why John Franklin was known was because he was the man who ate his boot. The, Gotta get the, that guy. The English pub, right? And the English public was also very much fascinated with Arctic exploration. It would be kind of analogous to um, the American public being interested in going to the moon in the sixties. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah, not like now. No one cares. <laughs> no, sadly. <laughs> Hopefully everybody will get reinterested again when we start going to the I moon agree. again soon. Uh, one of the big um, names in the uh, one of these search parties was a guy named John Ray. Um, he was he was a guy that sort of, uh, well, well, we'll get to kind of his big reveal um, in a second here. But he was very um, noteworthy and proficient guy. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. He had been all over the Arctic. I think he was one of the guys who listened to the Inuit, right? He was, and he was. He got shouted down as a result because he came back he from this exploration and interviewing a number of Inuit, and he said, "Hey, they told me that these guys probably, well, not probably, but definitely engaged in cannibalism. That's how desperate they yeah. became, and that did not. They didn't want to hear that. No, that did not sit well with Lady Jane Franklin." And she actually got Charles Dickens to basically write this diatribe about how terrible a person Ray was for listening to the Inuit and how terrible— Charles Dickens. Yeah, how terrible the Inuit were. John Geiger says that it was um, a, just a stain on his reputation that continues today. It was very racist, the stuff that he wrote. And he did it on behalf of Lady Jane Franklin to basically say, like, you're slandering these heroes— and Dickens even said, if there's if they're dead, I'll bet it was the Inuit that did this. Yeah. Um, he, anything but the possibility that they actually became so desperate to engage in cannibalism. And as we'll see, it turns out that the Inuit who who said that this happened were actually proven correct like a century later. Yeah, exactly. Um, by the 1900s, they had found graves. Uh, they had found corpses. Uh, they, they had found a lot of the stuff uh, except for the ships. 
and remarkably, um, just, oh, how long? Like not even 10 years ago, in 2014 Mm -hmm. and in 2016, they found the Erebus and the Terror, respectively, in about 30 feet of water, um, fairly intact, uh, considering how long it had been. And this was, uh, I think Terror was off of King William Island. Erebus was a little further south near the Adelaide uh, Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And they just don't know for sure uh, how the Erebus exactly got there, whether it was sailed there or uh, moved there or just accidentally drifted there. Um, Some combination of all those. Who knows? Yeah, it's possible it drifted like after the ice melted. Some people say maybe the ice moved it all the way down there. That, That wouldn't have happened. It would have crushed the boat. It could have very easily been sailed. But either way, like finding those ships was enormous. And there's really cool Parks Canada um, videos of scuba divers swimming through these ships that are like almost entirely intact. Mm-hmm. There's like still dishes on the shelves and bottles on shelves and like desks intact. And they the drawers are closed. They think because of the the, the state of the water and the anaerobic conditions – that there's probably lots of documentation of what went on during the the expedition in those drawers that they're going to yeah. eventually be able to get to. Totally. Uh, as far as wh- why they perished, um, there are a bunch of theories. Uh, sort of, you know, three of them can be kind of lumped together, and it could happen to sort of any expedition, which is, you know, bad luck with the weather. You know, those two really bad winters in a row without that summer thaw that they— uh, maybe we're counting on, um, combined with not being as prepared as you should have been. I guess two, not three. Uh, even though they were prepared, they were heavily stocked. This was just really rough territory, and the clothes they had might not have been perfect. They re- really held water well, which would freeze. Um, the equipment was really heavy. Uh, they, Like we said, they weren't listening to the locals about how you should really do things. Mm-hmm. They were doing things their way, so... That's a, a kind of underpreparedness. And so those are just sort of under the normal um, ways that one could die on an expedition like this then. And I, with the bad luck in particular, where they got iced in for that second winter, even the Inuit are like, we don't really go around there. They called it right. Tununi, which is back of beyond, which is a terrible name for a place that you're iced in in the Arctic. Uh-huh. And then on that NOVA documentary, they took ice core samples and they found that those winters that they were iced in were two of the worst winters in 700 years in that area. That's called so bad they, luck. They had terribly <laughs> bad luck for sure. Yeah, slash underprepared because they shouldn't have been there to begin with. Right. Uh, so those those are all sort of normal ways that you could perish, like I said. Uh, the last one that we have to talk about, though, is this lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the the contract with the— the guy that was innovating with his tin meats, he had to rush this thing through. Uh, it apparently leaked lead, and you know it was lined with lead, and that leaked into the food. Uh, they did um, lots of studies over the years. The first, I believe, was 1981. Um, there was an anthropologist named Owen, Dr. Owen Beatty, and basically was the first person to say, you know, I think this, uh, we, we've literally are founding lead in their bones, like at levels that we should not see. And it's, it seems pretty obvious there was lead in the examined corpses. Mm-hmm. Like, it may not have been everything, but it definitely had something to do with a lot of the deaths. Yeah, there, it's kind of criticized that the, he, he didn't have a control group. Like, it's possible these guys had tons of lead in their bodies anyway just from lifelong exposure to lead. And that it's possible their bones released it as they started to, to die, basically. Right. 
Um, we don't know because there isn't a control group, but it is, it's quite possible that it had some effect on the expedition if it wasn't directly killing people. They also think that the contaminated tins or that the poorly soldered tins may have been contaminated with botulism, which would have killed off a lot of people too. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so th- there's, it's just not clear. A lot of, like those first three graves that they found from the first winter, like you said, they were, I think they died from pneumonia, from tuberculosis. Um, but so few people have been found, and the state that they've been found in uh, hasn't really allowed for forensic anthropology to say, this is how this guy died, this is how this guy died. So it's all left to the imagination. Yeah. And I think one of the things that captures my imagination the most is that there are Inuit reports um, that in the summer of either 1851 or 1852, there were still four survivors left from this crew, four of them in a dog, probably Neptune the Newfoundland, I imagine, mm-hmm. and that they were the most skilled at hunting, so they had survived the longest, and they were all that was left. And um, by 1851, 1852, there had already been numerous search expeditions launched. Mm-hmm. So that means that there were people searching for them while there were still survivors. They just didn't, their paths didn't cross. They just didn't find one another. And uh, those guys were, those last four were the last of them. And yeah. I guess they did not go on. Yeah. I guess we should talk a little bit about the cannibalism thing because that's, uh, you know, that was what Ray was sort of brave enough to talk about and was, you know, like you said, he was he was basically uh, shunned because of this. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to hear anything like that. And it turns out that he was, he was basically, he was right. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They found cut marks on bones, uh, on leg bones. Uh, they found a, a skull from the same person that was intentionally broken. Um, all these, like, they now that we know what um, cannibal sites look like, mm-hmm. it has all the markings, basically. Literally. Yeah, like intentionally breaking bones, cutting bones on purpose, uh what else? They found like clusters, clusters of bones yeah, together. Like they'd just been tossed. That weren't like uh, just part of the body dying, like bones that shouldn't be together were together. Mm, yeah. And then a lot of the bones that were found were like long bones. So they suspect that they had just been like carrying arms and legs as, as portable food. It was sure. it was a bad jam. So there is it is clear that they did engage in cannibalism. And not only was Ray right, the Inuit who told Ray that they had engaged in cannibalism were right. And throughout some of these expeditions that came during this, what's called the Franklin search period from 1857 to 59, a a lot of Inuit um, agreed to be interviewed with translators um, with some of these explorers, and they documented these interviews. And it wasn't until like a century later that historians like John Geiger went through this stuff and was like, oh, (laughs) the Inuit knew all along exactly what had happened. Apparently, one of them pointed to where the ship was, the, I think the Erebus, um, and they still didn't discover it for another century after that. So um, it's a really interesting just kind of side note that, like, there's this whole group of people who are willing to cooperate and share their knowledge, and they were just totally ignored, and that's what led to the mystery that lasted for over a century. Yeah, I mean, I think if it hadn't have been for him poking around more, they were quite happy just to leave this as it was and that sort of be the the end of it all. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Good stuff. Yeah, so that's the Franklin expedition. Um, and now that we found the ships, 
uh, yeah, they are pretty confident that we'll have a lot more information soon. So that'll be pretty cool to look out for. Uh, and since I said it's cool to look out for, uh, oh, by the way, if you want to know more about this, go check out that Nova episode on it. It's really, really good. And um, since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this um, the shortest short stuff because this is from Kent. And Kent uh, talks, he's basically sending in a short stuff suggestion, Mm -hmm. but I think says enough about the thing that it can just be its own little uh, episode here at the end. Oh, neat. Uh, We were talking about the 70s trucker craze Mm -hmm. on the uh, trucker episode, Long Haul Trucking. And he said, we all know truckers have their own lingo, but one phrase that has died out in usage is the Monfort Lane. You ever heard of this? I had until I wrote his email. Yeah, the Monfort Lane referred to the left lane of the interstate. Uh, In the early 70s, a Colorado cattle legend named Kenny Monfort started shipping meat to the East Coast. He had a fleet of supposedly triple-digit trucks and drivers who were not afraid to mash it. They turned two trips a week uh, from Colorado to New York City. One driver recalled he had $1,200 in speeding fines one year when uh, these were back when tickets were about 15 bucks. (laughs) And points didn't accumulate mm-hmm. on your license. That's, that's, that's important. Yeah, you just rack them up forever uh, and have the company pay for them, I guess. Uh, and interestingly, the Monfort family is now the principal owners of the Colorado Rockies baseball team. That is very interesting. And that is from Kent. Thanks a lot, Kent. Good stuff all around. That was a short stuff right there on the end of the Franklin Expedition episode. Great. If you want to be like, what was it, Kent? Kent. If you want to be like Kent and give us a little short stuff that we can add on as a listener mail, I think that's a cool new thing. Let's give it a shot. Uh, and you can send that to Stuff Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 'Cause has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Hey everyone, the Easter Bunny is coming early this year. That's right, Easter is Sunday, March 31st, and with free in-store pickups, CVS makes it easy to get everything you need for brilliant baskets and happier hunts. You can find delightful toys, Peeps-themed egg decorators, pre-filled Easter eggs packed with goodies, and so much more. So hop to it and get your order fast with free CVS pickup. Visit cvs.com slash Easter for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.